Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's taking shitloads of meth, my Hitler? I'm Robert Evans. This is Behind the Bastards, the podcast where we tell you everything you don't know about the worst people in all of history. I love or in the that. case of today's episode, <laughs> stuff that you think you know, but you actually don't know the specifics in the way that you probably think you do, maybe. Anyway, that was definitely top 10 intros to this podcast. Thank you, Sophie. You're welcome. Sophie Lichterman, my producer and legally boss. Uh, and my guest <laughs> today, I would like to introduce the wonderful Carolina Barlow. Carolina, you are a writer and a co host of the Ron Burgundy podcast and the True Romance podcast. Carolina? Yes. Is Will Ferrell nice in person? He is a toxic overlord. Will okay. Ferrell's actually the nicest okay. person I've ever met in my <laughs> life. Um, he's nicer than I think most members of my family and yours. I'm just mm-hmm. assuming. Um, no, I think you're accurate. Knowing how uh, kind he is, and yep. yeah, he's he's a Sophie. You can speak yeah, to this. He Frenched mm-hmm. my dog. Mm-hmm. How does his hair smell? Okay, this is a great question because <laughs> Bill is very good at grooming and he always smells really nice. His skincare mm-hmm. is amazing. And I believe he may still be using this product, but once we were on a press tour with Mark Wahlberg, who was using a lot of a brand called Moroccan Oil, yes. which you can buy. I'm not, this is not an ad, but you can buy it pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. Will decided, wait, I'm messing up the story. Okay. Will was using a brand uses a brand called Moroccan Oil, 
And Mark Wahlberg was obsessed with it. And so we ended up talking about it a lot on a press tour and Moroccan oil then sent us a bunch of Moroccan oil. So I believe he Mm, still uses that, but it smells incredible. Okay. Well, this is, this is actually a lot more information than I expected. Welcome to the celebrity corner where we talk about how different celebrities hair smells. Next up, Alec Baldwin. What they used to bathe. Yeah. So funny. No, uh, we're talking about, we are talking about a celebrity today. He's yeah, just surrounded would, yeah. by babies, so, so probably like piss and shit. Yeah, piss and shit all the time. That's that scans yeah. completely, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know who else? Changing a diaper. I totally forgot. You know who else smelled like shit? Oh, this is so accurate. This is so accurate. And is a celebrity. I don't like Adolf that. Ti- yeah, I don't like that title for him. He is a celebrity. He's a very famous man. Arguably more famous than any living celebrity. I'm not going to I'm Look, not going to give Hitler a celebrity title. You can say a lot of bad things about the man, but he has brand recognition. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so we're like going from polar <laughs> opposites. We're talking about one Madonna yeah. or Cher. You don't even need last names. Exactly. One just Hitler. You're just right? going from yeah. like the nicest person ever of Will Ferrell to the worst person ever to Adolf Hitler so quick. Well, he's also, his name's kind of been a verb because you can like, I don't know about y'all, but like when my friends are being shitty, I'm like, you're kind of Hitlering right now. You're, you're getting a little Hitler on all of us here. Maybe calm down. So he's like, I, he's, I he's like Google. I don't my friends have been done something so shitty that I would spring that name Fair on enough. Them. Well, this one time my buddy Mike annexed the Sudetenland and we were, exactly. we got pretty, we got pretty well, pissed at him. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's apt. Um, Carolina, what do you, how do you feel about drugs? Drugs. I don't do drugs because when I was young, I did them too much and then I had to stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm actually in the same boat. Um, I, I drink sometimes and, uh, and take Kratom, but, uh, I, my my doing illegal drugs days are long long behind me because I damaged my brain too much. Right. You've what have you heard about the Nazis and drugs? I know that they did a lot of them, and I think World War yep. II, much like the Civil War, mm-hmm. was a pretty crazy yeah. time. And Vietnam wars generally and drugs actually tend to mix well together. Absolutely, it's a great it's just, time to get wasted. Yeah. When, when you're at a war zone, I can say that from experience. Um, and you know, it's also, so there's, uh, in 2016, a German novelist and a screenwriter, a guy named Norman Oler published a book, a work of historic nonfiction in the United States. It was released under the title, uh, blitzed drugs in Nazi Germany. A lot of people have heard of this book. It was an international, but it was a huge, huge fucking book. I mean, I guess most of the people listening to the episode right now either heard of it or you read some article that was based on kind of the media campaign around this because literally every major news website and magazine on the fucking planet published interviews with this guy or at least kind of like write-ups that were summarizing the book uh the guardian's article uh during this period is kind of emblematic of the whole it was titled hi hitler which is a, a fun a fun title nice little play on Heil Hitler. Um, and it's also really appropriate because the reason Hitler was getting high was for his health and, and Heil Hitler literally means health to Hitler. But anyway, that's a, that's a point older makes. Um, so I'm going to read a, nice a little pun. It is a nice little pun. Uh, I'm going to read a sample paragraph from that article talking about Oler's work. 
The book in question is The Total Rush, or to use its superior English title, Blitzed, which reveals the astonishing and hitherto un largely untold story of the Third Reich's relationship with drugs, including cocaine, heroin, morphine, and above all, methamphetamines. And of their effect on, not only on Hitler's final days, the Fuhrer, by Oler's account, was an absolute junkie with ruined veins by the time he retreated to the last of his bunkers, but on the Wehrmacht's successful invasion of France in 1940. Published in Germany last year, where it became a bestseller, it has since been translated into 18 languages, a fact that delights Oler, but also amazes him. And this is interesting. I'm starting not kind of the way we normally do, by just sort of giving the history, but by talking about this book because it is so prominent. And in the years that I've been doing Behind the Bastards, I've probably had a couple of hundred different people email me or ask me, sometimes in person, if I've read Blitzed uh, and tell me that I ought to do a hit, an episode on Hitler's drug addiction. And this is that episode, but I have to tell you, a decent chunk of this is actually going to be kind of critiquing Blitzed um, mm. and more broadly critiquing kind of how the media presented it. And I want to clarify up top, I don't think Blitzed is a bad book or that Oler is a, a bad guy. I think his work is in some ways a victim of, its own, of his own success. Mm. If you start Googling around permutations of phrases like Hitler's drug addiction or drugs in, Nazis German, in Nazi Germany or the Nazis in meth, about 70% of the search results you see are going to be articles based on Norman's book, kind of rewriting the same thing over and over again. And this makes his book fairly unique in the field of Nazi studies. The Third Reich is the single most widely studied and written about regime in political history. There are governments on the planet right now who produce less, who have produced to date less documentation for their government bureaucracy than there is historic works written about the Third Reich. Um, no other government has had more scholars devote their lives to examining it, and no state has had so many pages of quality historical writing dedicated to its history. And when we include the great minds who've written about the Third Reich throughout history, we quickly become clogged with genius. There's William Shirer, Ian Kershaw, John Toland, Volker Ulrich, Richard Evans, and Hannah Arendt, just to name a few. Mm. And the fact that in five years, Norman Oler has become one of the most recognized writers in Nazi history um, is due to the subject matter of his book, namely people like drugs and people are fascinated by the Nazis. And if you combine those two things, you're going to sell a lot of fucking books. Um, and one of the reasons this frustrates some historians is that some of the stuff that Oler wrote about had been well documented before uh, he came into the picture. For example, pervitin, which is the methamphetamine that the Nazis primarily took. Um, a lot of scholars wrote about the use of pervitin by Nazis during the Blitzkrieg. Where Oler broke new ground was in making a detailed study about the personal notes and professional journals of a guy named Dr. Theodore Morell, who was one of Hitler's personal physicians and his primary dope dealer. Mm. Morell was not an unknown quantity to historians previously, but Oler spends a lot of time digging into precisely what he gave Hitler and how it may have impacted history. Half of the controversy among historians about Blitzed revolves around the language used in this book. Oler is not a historian. He's not a scholar. He's writing in a pop nonfiction cadence and vocabulary. So this is closer to a guy like, um, who's that fucking guy everybody hates now, but everybody loved for? I wrote The Tipping Point. Malcolm Gladwell. He, his, his, <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not saying he's like, because I, I think he's much no, more responsible than Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> but he, he's, he's closer to the Gladwell end of the spectrum, that kind of pop nonfiction, yeah. than he is to a scholar like Ian Kershaw, you know? Um, and that frustrates scholars because his work has been so influential, right? You get kind of pissed off when, like, you, you do detailed, painstaking analyses of these guys, and then, um, some dude kind of throws out 
a book that maybe maybe uh, exaggerates some things and uses some like flagrant language and and is much more popular than any work by a scholar will ever be that frustrated people um and you know i i don't think that that means it's not, there is good scholarship in this. And there's in fact, groundbreaking scholarship in this. Ian Kershaw, who's probably the single most prominent biographer of Hitler alive today, um, called this a serious work of scholarship and praised it. Um, Richard Evans, on the other hand, who's also very well respected, hated this book. So it's not like, there, there's not, I, I don't wanna come across as saying there's an agreement among scholars that this book is bad or that there's an agreement that it's good. Um, I tend to think it did more good than harm. Um, but it was written to appeal to the masses and be a popular book, and it absolutely right. is. Now, the other half of the controversy around Blitz revolves around some of the more serious issues with the way Oler presents his research. Namely, he suffers from the same problem most people do when they zero in on a very specific aspect of the Nazi regime. He's gotten so into the weeds on this topic that he lends it weight that's sometimes disproportionate right. to its actual... The same thing happens to people studying like the occult and Nazis, right? Because there is like a really fascinating history of like esoteric Hitlerism of like of occult Nazism, but it also wasn't nearly as influential as the people who write books about it put it on as. And in fact, by like 1941, it was pretty much out of 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 any kind of influence in the party. But you know, if that's your thing, you're going to seek to kind of hellboy things up a little, you know. So this is like a long-winded well, like way of saying it's debatable. No, it's it's a long way of of trying to like give caveats about like what are. Not saying it's a bad book, but saying it's a good book that I think, because he's so focused on the drugs, tends to ignore other reasons for some of the behavior oh, okay. that he's outlining that, that, that are not drugs. Yeah, I wonder if it's dangerous. This is me speaking without reading the book. I think it may be dangerous to blame anything on drug use. I don't think that's a, that is a, the chief criticism the historians that dislike him make. And he's actually right. pretty careful. He's careful in his book to say, like, I am not saying Hitler's horrible crimes are the result of, course, of these drugs. Because one of the things he does, he points out, as we'll go into, most of the hardcore drug abuse from Hitler started in the 40s, you know, when he had already set everything in motion that he was going to right. set in His motion. His ideals were already pretty yeah. clear. The Reichstag but, was going down. Yeah. But he's saying, like, it's it's worth noting if a guy is fucked up on meth and cocaine and opium all of the time and he's a warlord, it's worth wondering, like, how does that impact his decision-making process? Which I think is a fair question, right? Like, obviously, there is a danger when you do that, but it's also, I don't think that means you shouldn't look at like, well, what was this doctor shooting into the veins of this man making these incredibly influential decisions? It's the same way that like it's worth looking at how the methamphetamine JFK took impacted his decision making during the Cuban Missile Crisis and shit, right? Like it or is. Trump it's not, and uh, his yeah. Adderall problem. Mm -hmm. Or Trump and Adderall. Mm -hmm. It's it's certainly not like I I don't want to. I, I agree that's a a worry, but I also don't think we should be like, well, let's not talk about this just because some people absolutely, will fuck absolutely. it up. You know. Um, I guess I I'm implying more that leaning into it too hard, giving it yes. too much weight. I can see it. Um, distracting from a serious threat that was yeah. definitely worsened by drugs. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Vietnam, towards the end of Vietnam, all the soldiers, uh, American soldiers were getting uh, really messed up on all of the kinds of pills that were just very prevalent in the 60s and 70s, like Quaaludes, Black Beauties, Speed, anything to keep them up. And it increased a lot of paranoia, um, especially when 
there's an enemy that, you know, quote unquote enemy Viet Cong who um, aren't in uniforms, uh, your paranoia can increase. It could make you more violent um, with or with, without these drugs. The Vietnam War is still inherently a crime against humanity, but drugs don't help. Yeah, it doesn't I, help. Yeah, and and that's there's a question too with the Nazis, right? Where you don't want to like it, a, a lot of these 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 Wehrmacht soldiers were going days without sleeping and taking shitloads right. of methamphetamine, and some of them committed horrible atrocities. You don't want to like the atrocities. Number one, were often ordered by people who were certainly not drugged out of their minds and were planned pretty extensively ahead of time. That said. The fact that a lot of these guys are on meth and like flipping out and burning down villages, um, some of that's probably due to the fact that they're they're fucked up on methamphetamine, right? Like, yeah. the fa- it, not necessarily like the the concerted genocide actions where they're shooting forty thousand people in a day, but like, oh yeah, they get shot at by a partisan and they burn down a village. Yeah, maybe that's some guys who are tweaked out on speed over react like flipping out in the same right. way that like yeah, maybe it had an impact. Um, yeah. I think you can say that. I think you can want to know. Okay, well, you have millions of men going days without sleeping, heavily armed and taking methamphetamine. I bet that has an influence on their behavior without saying the Nazis killed millions of Russian civilians because they were on meth, which is not the case. They killed millions of Russian civilians because the war from the beginning was a genocidal crusade. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to like I don't want to like veer away from what is an interesting question just because people can um people can simplify it to the extent that it, sure. it gets fucked up, you know, because I, I, I do think this is a fascinating question. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about Oler's findings here because I do agree with Ian Kershaw, who described it as a serious piece of scholarship. He goes into, he's not just re, like cutting up other bits of reporting. He looks at a lot of original primary sources. He's combing through, in a way I don't think anyone else ever did, Dr. Theodore Morell's, Hitler's primary physician's notes in, in exhaustive detail, researching the medicines he's given. There's a lot of very important scholarship, I think, in his findings. But I also will be laying out some areas where Oler's conclusions do not gel with the actual evidence, and there are some points there. So let's start by talking about drug culture in Weimar, Germany. As a refresher, the Weimar government was a progressive democracy that followed after the Kaiser's monarchy went away and was eventually eaten up by Hitler. For like the 15 or so years it existed, Weimar was a dizzyingly progressive uh, government for its time. Berlin became a magnet for the LGBT community and the site of the first, very first, serious research on healthcare for trans people. Art and music flourished. And as you'd expect from a city full of bohemian artists and musicians, people were getting fucked up all the time. Like, I mean, just, just real... Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. Like, real creative drug use. Um, because like Berlin is, Berlin is, you know, what, what, what places like new, you know, chunks of New York and chunks of California became in the sixties and seventies. Berlin is that in the fucking twenties, you know? Um, and this put I mean, Berlin great in great photographs you can find of Berlin in the twenties oh, yeah. where people are in drag. It's very casual. It's actually completely, there's a f- flamboyant, like fun roaring twenties quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it's 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 a fascinating time to study. Um and and this put, you know, v- 
one of the things that I think is, is critiquable at Oler is he, when he's talking about drug use in Germany, he focuses heavily on Berlin. And the Berlin, hella drug use. But also Berlin's drug use is in direct contrast to what's going on in the rest of Germany. Not only was most of Germany much more socially conservative, think about like Portland, Oregon versus its surrounding areas, right? But right. the use of recreational drugs like cocaine was markedly uncommon in Germany and not even particularly common in Berlin, as we'll talk about. It's worth noting that at this time, most Germans across the country would not have considered tobacco or alcohol drugs. So when we're talking about drug use, those are not drugs to Germans in the 20s. That's like milk to them. Um, both were so ubiquitous that they were considered to be a part of a person's diet. And interestingly enough, both communist and Nazi leaders in Europe at this time hated tobacco. Lenin was famously anti-cigarette. Right. Um, so was Hitler. Obviously, Lenin's anti-cigarette shit didn't last once because Stalin loved him some some smoking. And <laughs> Hitler hated cigarettes, but there was never really any sort of they both like he had to kind of accept like, well, I'm not going to get Germans to stop smoking. Like that's not going to happen. They um, were in the hardcore scene. Yeah, they were. They were. They were. Kind of, they, he was. <laughs> he was edge. definitely kind of straight edge. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, uh, we'll talk about this more later. But for the most part, throughout the 20s, Nazis and communists smoke and dra- smoked and drank about as much as everybody else. So again, while there's Nazi and communist leaders who are being like, no, you need to struggle towards revolution and be sober for that. Most communists, most Nazis are getting drunk. And, and, and chain smoking like anybody else. Um, and so when we talk about drugs in Germany, what, what I mean by drugs is hard stimulants like cocaine and methamphetamine, as well as opiates. Germany was actually the world leader in drug manufacturing at this yes, time. Morphine. Bayer, mm-hmm, Bayer exactly. Uh, morphine uh, had first been isolated by a German chemist in the early 1800s. It was rediscovered, patented, and mass produced by Bayer in 1898. By the end of World War I, Morphine was the number one product of the entire German pharmaceutical industry. They were shipping this stuff out everywhere because it's the most addictive thing in the world. (laughs) The company that owned that first manufacturing plant in Germany was the Sacklers, later Mm -hmm. responsible for the opioid epidemic we're currently facing Mm -hmm. in the United States. Good people. Yeah, we've talked about them a lot. Yeah, um, there's some other Bayer products made during the Nazi regime that we could talk about, too. Yeah. But. Like heroin? <laughs> yeah. Like straight up heroin, they yeah. advertise as lighter than morphine. Yeah, um, I mean, and it, a lot of this shit is OTC in Germany at the time, right? Um, and Bayer is the first to produce and sell heroin. And actually, heroin stays over the counter in Germany until like the 1950s. Um, <laughs> wow. Which, wow. I'm, God, to live in those times... To just be able to walk down to the corner store and get a big fat bag of horse, smoke it, and I don't know. Doesn't really matter what you do. Go to the movies. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what you're doing when you're smoking heroin. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, now, by a lot of like this point, heroin has become like illegal in the U.S. and a lot of uh, Asia. At least if you're taking it, like you can't just go and get it over the counter, right? Maybe it's more prescribed than it is than it was now. But it was not like you couldn't just walk in and buy it as a person. But you can in Germany, and so Germany, since everything's kind of legal there, becomes the nexus for an international gray and black market. Market, drug trade and heroin. And these German Swiss companies will kind of use Germany as a base and will, they're not directly selling it illegally underground in countries, but they're putting it in position to be sold that way and they're profiting from it. I'm going to quote from a write up by a scholar named Jonathan Levy here. 
Both morphine and heroin were consumed in Germany during the Weimar years in the Third Reich. Though morphine was far more popular than its more potent cousin, perhaps explaining Merck's decision to cease its uh, diacetyl morphine program. The number of addicts in Germany is difficult to ascertain. Like many drug statistics, the reported numbers of ad addicts are mere guesstimates rather than reliable figures, mainly because it is next to impossible to differentiate between addicts and users. Now, the best evidence seems to suggest that the rate of opiate addiction in Germany increased from the start of the war years, and by that I mean World War I, until about 1922, which is probably caused by a, the same thing that drives a lot of opiate use in the U.S. today, which is wounded soldiers getting hooked yes. on it, right? Getting prescribed as much of it as they want and having, you know, developing a problem. But Huge by 19 problem in the Civil War, too. Yeah, yeah. Every time, every time a lot of men get wounded. <laughs> yeah. Soldiers got uh, hooked on. I mean, it, it's funny you say guesstimate because I'm just reading that Sakura book everyone's reading, and they said they said the estimate was a quarter of a million soldiers in the United mm -hmm. States hooked on morphine, and that even Theodore Roosevelt basically created a position for someone to fight this quote unquote epidemic. Yeah, I mean that 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 completely completely makes sense, especially when it is like as available as it was when you can just bump down to the street and buy it. Uh, why wouldn't you take a bunch of heroin? Um, now, uh, by 1931, though, the rate of addiction seems to have, like, fallen in Germany. Um, obviously, none of our data is perfect, but it may have just been a matter of, like, enough time had passed since the war. People had recovered enough. Some of them had probably died. Um, one leader in the Reich Health Office at that point estimated that just point, there were just 0.3 male addicts per 10,000 people in Germany, which is probably nonsense. But he also noted that one in 100 doctors were addicts. Um, and this is probably a much more accurate number, in part because like a lot of these guys have been prosecuted for this, and in part because today we know that doctors are at a, heavily, a massively elevated risk of particularly opiate addiction, right? Including Same thing with pharmacists, nurses. right? Yeah. Yeah, doctors, pharmacists, and nurses. You know, I've talked to a, I've talked to a nurse with a drug addiction who was like pinching, you know, uh, opiates and shit for, for quite a long while, and it's... Um, like it's 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 hard to avoid, especially given like the trauma that you encounter as a healthcare worker. Why wouldn't you want to be high on fucking oxy all the time? Right. I get it. Mm -hmm. Like it's not good behavior if people's lives are in your hand, but it's I I can empathize with the need yeah. to dole that. Yeah. Especially since I don't know, none of us are. We we've all decided not to not to do the pandemic mitigation thing anymore. So right. I don't know. And we're <laughs> paying more yeah. taxes than Jeff Bezos. As yeah. a nurse in Arizona. Yeah. It's so, uh, yeah, take some oxy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to yell at you. <laughs> right. Um, now, uh, do, do, do. yeah, cocaine was also a drug with a German origin. It was synthesized first from coca leaves by German chemists and popularized by a Viennese psychiatrist named Dr. Sigmund Freud and a Viennese eye doctor named Karl Kohler. Freud prescribed cocaine as part of his talk therapy sessions, and Dr. Kohler just poured it right into people's eyes as a local anesthetic, which Love is, <laughs> man, imagine going to the eye doctor and, all right, I'm going to pour some cocaine in your eyes. Keep them open. <laughs> this shit's strong as ass <laughs> my therapist kathy mm -hmm. shout out if before i was about to talk to her about um stalking people on social media and how it was affecting my mental health she poured mm -hmm. some cocaine into my eyes <laughs> mm -hmm. i can't say how that would affect our sessions i think they'd be radder i think they'd be <laughs> they'd go by really quickly really they would quickly. go by very quickly yeah <laughs> And I would need a 
gallon of water to help my dry mouth. Yes. Look, as far as I am aware, cocaine is a drug without downsides. So I don't see why people shouldn't shouldn't take a shitload of it. Uh, it's good for your for heart. For a second, I thought you were good sincere. For your, it, uh, it, I've heard it has the ability to reduce uh, 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 nasal problems. Cleans you out real this good. This is and not you can shit accurate. for the next two days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. legal, Nothing for legal reasons, no. Continue. You know what? It is time for an ad break. And Behind the Bastards is sponsored by the global cocaine industry. Um, Behind the Bastards. If you like podcasts, you'll love cocaine. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and we're celebrating the cocaine industry. You're not. An industry with no problems. Not true. So, more PR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're only hearing one side of the story. Exactly. People <laughs> talk a lot about all the deaths, all the murders, all the violence, all the death squads funded by cocaine exports. People never talk about the humble movie producers railing cocaine off of the back of each other's iPhones in the uh, bathroom Martin of a Scorsese? club. Yeah, ever Martin Scorsese. <laughs> ever heard of him? Right? Another think person who never did anything problematic. Cocaine. Thank you. Robert. So... Robert. <laughs> Now, we were just talking about how Dr. Sigmund Freud and Dr. Kohler, uh, Karl Kohler um, were heavily responsible with popularizing cocaine in Germany. And both guys are Jewish. This is relevant because cocaine takes off as the Nazis are rising to and then getting into power. Um, and so the Nazis condemn cocaine as a Jewish drug, corrupting pure Aryan bodies, right? Um, they are not fans of cocaine. And in this is why they can't really come after opiates, right? Um, and they don't. They have these kind of, they, they, they kind of approach it as a public health problem, but they can't condemn opiate users because most, op- a lot of opiate users are soldiers. And there's this, you have to like worship veterans in this period of time, especially if you're the Nazis. But cocaine, that's the drug that, you know, the artists and, and, and the queer people and the, and the, the fucking psychiatrists are doing. You can, you can demonize cocaine, you know? Um, And they do. So Berlin decadence was a major topic of complaint for the Nazis. And the city was a hive of all things rad. There were illegal illegal dance parties, not dissimilar to raves. There were infamous clubs like the Bauhaus Resi, uh, which was kind of like the Studio 54 of its time. It was a place people would meet and fuck and do lots of cocaine. Since prostitution and drug use was more or less legal in Berlin, tourists from the United States would often travel there to fuck and snort themselves silly. Mm. In Blitzed, Oler cites the lyrics of a contemporary song to set the mood of the time. And I don't know what the tune of this song was, but it's a good song. Once not so very long ago, sweet alcohol, that beast brought warmth and sweetness to our lives, but then the price increased. And so cocaine and morphine, Berliners now select. Let lightning flashes rage outside, we snort and we inject. At dinner in the restaurant, the waiter brings the tin of coke for us to feast upon, forget whiskey and gin. Let drowsy morphine take its subcutaneous effect upon our nervous system, we snort and we inject. These medications aren't allowed, of course, they're quite forbidden, but even such illicit treats are very seldom hidden. Euphoria awaits us, and though, as we suspect, our foes can't wait to shoot us down, we snort and we inject. And if we snort ourselves to death or into the asylum, our days are going downhill fast. How better to beguile them? Europe's a madhouse anyway. No need for genuflecting. The only way to paradise is snorting and injecting. That's very fun, and the way you read it made it sound like you were reading a children's book. Yeah, it would be a good children's book. And it makes sense. This is happening as the first kind of anti-drug laws are being pushed through. And again, they're not they're not nearly as strict as anything we, we live with today in the United States, but they're the first. And the Nazis are, you know, they're complaining about drug use, but they're also complaining about degeneracy, about artists, about about people who are, are, are queer in there. The, the, those people, the, the like kind of artistic, intellectual, can see what's coming. And they also can't stop it because uh, they didn't. Um, and that's what the song is about. It's like, well, we're about to get all murdered by the Nazis. Might as well take some heroin. <laughs> Which, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting a little, yeah. The price is increasing. Alcohol's yeah. not cutting it anymore. Yeah. Time to get, yeah, fucked up until the it's Nazis take total power. Yeah. Hard to blot out what's happening. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, I will say, somewhat ironically, Oler's focus on Berlin drug culture, the fact that he zero was in on that so much, kind of focusing less on the rest of Germany, seems to have been heavily influenced by Nazi propaganda in a way that I think does make his overall work a little less accurate. He writes, quote, anyone who could afford it took cocaine, the ultimate weapon for intensifying the moment. Coke spread like wildfire and symbolized the extravagance of the age. On the other hand, it was viewed as a degenerate poison and disapproved of by both communists and Nazis who were fighting for power in the streets. There was violent opposition to the free and easy zeitgeist. German nationalists railed against moral decay, and similar attacks were heard from the conservatives. Though Berlin's new status as a cultural metropolis was accepted with pride, the bourgeoisie, which was losing status in the 1920s, showed its insecurity through its radical condemnation of mass pleasure culture, decried as decadently Western. Now, his job does a fine, his work here does a fine job of getting across the way popular German opinion kind of, or at least right-wing opinion, saw Berlin and the decadence of its artistic set. But it's also not historically accurate in in absolute terms. And to make that point, I want to quote from a paper called The Drug Policy of the Third Reich from the journal Social History of Alcohol and Drugs. Criminal commissar Ernst Engelbrecht of Berlin claimed in 1924 that cocaine became most popular amongst female and male homosexuals. To him, cocaine was not a problem. It had turned into an epidemic. Yet according to contemporary estimates, the city of Karlsruhe reigned reigned supreme as the center for cocaine consumption with 1.44 grams per thousand people, while Berlin remained second with a consumption rate of one gram per thousand people, which is not particularly high. 1924 marked the first German anti... So, yeah, he's, he's... Again, there is cocaine. There is this kind of very popular party sect, and the Nazis make a lot, of, a lot of hay of it. But in absolute terms, Berlin isn't consuming a particularly large amount of cocaine. And again, I think this is an area where the fact that the Nazis harped on it so much has Oler focusing on kind of the decadence of Berlin in a way that that is kind of falling for their trap because it was not Berlin itself was not nearly as decadent or drug-addled as the propaganda made it seem, based on the numbers that we actually have. Um, but the now, opiate problem was, it sounds like. Well, it, yeah, it, it peaked around, I think, um, 22, 23. Um, it, it starts to decline to this. Like, that's kind of the whole point is that Germany, especially compared to the United States, does not have a particularly big drug problem or drug culture. It's, again, very prominent because a lot of famous people are involved in, like, the set in Berlin that is doing a lot of this. But that is that's kind of like a subculture in Berlin. It's not the city, and it's not... mainstream in Germany. Um, And the fact that the Nazis kind of blow it up into being Berlin is the sin, the hum of... It's kind of like what happens with, like, Portland, where, like, the city of Portland's being burnt down every week because the right wing sees a kid break a Starbucks window. Um, That's kind of... That was you, huh? Well, no, I was... I I, I didn't break... I didn't see shit. (laughs) You're stumbling Um, over your words. But that's kind of how... That's kind of how drug use in Berlin gets painted. And, and a lot of people still see it in history just because the Nazis made so much hay over the decadence of the city. When the reality is that the vast majority of people in Berlin, um, if they ever did indulge, weren't doing it all that much. Um, it's buzzwords. It's like Freud. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, 1924 marked the first major German anti-drug law, which banned the sale of powder cocaine from pharmacies. So didn't make it illegal. You could still get cocaine pretty much legally. You just couldn't buy powdered coke from the pharmacy. Um, And cocaine consumption is estimated to have peaked in 1927 and fallen afterwards. So this is definitely an area where Oler engages in some counterfactual prose for the sake of making his book more interesting. Um, But that said, his writing does give a decent idea of how the Nazis expressed their rhetoric around drugs. 
Quote, Jews and drugs merged into a single toxic or epidemiological unit that menaced Germany. For decades, our people have been told by Marxists and Jews, your body belongs to you. That was taken to mean that at social occasions between men or between men and women, any quantities of alcohol could be enjoyed, even at the cost of the body's health. Irreconcilable with this Jewish Marxist view is the Teutonic German idea that we are the bearers of the eternal legacy of our ancestors, and that accordingly our body belongs to the clan and the people. SS Hauptsturmführer, criminal commissar Erwin Kosmel, who was from 1941 director of the Reich Central Office for Combating Drug Transgressions, asserted that Jews play a supreme part in the international drug trade. His work was concerned with eliminating international criminals who often have roots in Jewry. The Nazi Party's Office of Racial Policy claimed that the Jewish character was essentially drug-dependent. The intellectual urban Jew preferred cocaine or morphine to calm his constantly excited nerves and give himself a feeling of peace and inner security. Jewish doctors were rumored to be often extraordinarily addicted to morphine. But he rather, Uller, rather conveniently ignores the fact that, you know, again, in focusing on this, and those are all things the Nazis said. They definitely, again, harped on Jewish drug use and like this, the, the scourge of drug addiction and how it's Jewish, you know, has Jewish origins. But immediately before the Nazi seizure of power, the Reich health minister wrote, quote, to the knowledge of the Reich health office, there is no illicit drug trade in Berlin in a considerable amount as to pose a danger to the public. The circumstances in this respect have changed completely in recent years. And this is 1931. So after 27, drug use of kind of of all kinds declines rapidly. And so by the point the Nazis are in power, um, there's really not much of a drug problem. And as a result, there's really not much of a drug crackdown. And this is Oler's main sin in his book, as I see it. He wants to draw a direct line between the modern war on drugs and the Nazi war on drugs. And so he notes that when the central, while the central drug law in the Third Reich was a holdover from Weimar Germany, there were new drug regulations put in place when the Nazis took power to further Nazi ideas of racial hygiene. He claims that drug consumption was heavily penalized, starting in 1933 with prison time, and appears to be making the claim that drug users in Nazi Germany were penalized and thrown into concentration camps like other political prisoners and racial minorities. This is something actual scholars who study drug wasn't policy it, in the Third Reich disagree with. Wasn't it not illegal at that point? While you can find... Yeah. Most of it was not, and even so, we'll talk about it, okay. like, consumption wasn't really criminalized, and there was... And no point were drug users gone after and, and put in concentration camps in an organized way. And I want to quote from that, that paper by Jonathan Levy again, quote, drug use yeah. was never a crime in Germany. Thus, habitual drug users or drug addicts were not criminals. Therefore, they were not considered habitual criminals and could not be sent to a concentration camp. So... This is, again, if we're, if, in terms of critiquing older, and this is a big chunk of the early part of his book, and it is, you know, there's two parts of this book. There's the part of it where he's doing original research into Hitler's drug use and Hitler's doctor, and there's a part of it where he's kind of synthesizing a bunch of other historic reports on the Nazis and drugs, and it's that part that, in my opinion, he screws up the most. Um, so, yeah, um, it's, 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 anyway, uh, 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 that's a, a little bit of a rant on, on this book, but I think it's important to kind of get this, this sort of stuff right. Um, and when you it actually, it's yeah. more important to get this stuff right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Levy is, is clear that he cannot find, and Levy is a guy who studies specifically Third Reich policies on like drug policies. His conclusion is that there's no evidence that, again, and the Nazis talked a lot about, about racial hygiene, about how drug use, you know, was a, was a racial 
racial problem. But there's no evidence, according to Levy, that, that, that Nazi drug policy was impacted by their ideas on racial hygiene. So politicians and like people were saying one thing, but in terms of like what the actual legal changes were, there's just not evidence of that. Um, so, and I have to think Levy knows his shit on this better than Oler does. Uh, so making drug consumption a crime was really our thing? Oh, yeah. We, we do the hell out of that. <laughs> I mean, the Germans do now, but right. um, yeah. And part again, part of why the Nazis really didn't want to go after drug users um, is because a lot of them were veterans. Right. Um, Hermann Goering was a drug-addicted veteran. Uh, uh, the, in the trench generation were idolized. They were nearly worshipped by the Nazis. If you'd focused on junkies and demonizing them, like that would have been bad politics. It's also worth noting that the German penal code established during the Kaisersreich was actually, we would consider it wildly progressive on issues of drug addiction compared to the United States. And I'm going to quote from Levy here. Addicts were not responsible for their actions while under the influence of drugs and should receive treatment instead of a jail sentence. Judges often agreed with this position, but were unable to force treatment and were known to set free criminals unfit to stand trial. The protection of drunken and intoxicated criminals existed in the German penal code since its inception. And obviously, that's not a perfect way to do things either, being like, well, you you raped somebody, you beat the shit out of somebody, but you were drunk, so get out of here! They found um, a dime bag of, uh, mm-hmm. you know... High sativa. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, there is, there is also an element of that that's good, which is that like, well, yeah, it, it, drug addiction should be treated as a health problem rather than yeah, a criminal disease. problem. Um, yeah. Thank so, you, Hunter uh, Biden, for, yeah, for, for progressing our issue. understanding of that. Smoked enough crack to move the U.S. forward really, on drug policy. Really doing your country a service. Mm-hmm. And I mean that actually sincerely. You know who else is doing our country oh, a service, so Carolina? Brand, brand. The Sinaloa cartel, producers I of the finest th- cocaine available in the world. I literally never thought I would miss until this exact mm-hmm. episode. No, no, we we're are we are pure Sinaloa these days. So curl up with a big fat bag of cocaine and listen to a podcast while sweating heavily. Make a pipe out of your mother's vase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Make a pipe out of anything. ABP baby, always be piping. It's my motto. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. 
because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! Ah, uh, boy. So, drugs. Um... Yeah, uh, so far I've mostly criticized Blitz, uh, and it does deserve some criticism, but now we're about to get into what I think the book does very well, which is provide the first really thorough history of a fascinating figure, one of the few high-up Nazis to be mostly ignored by historians, Dr. Theodore Morell. In 1999, psychiatrist Fritz Redlich published a book titled Hitler, Diagnosis of a Destructive Prophet. It was an attempt to actually answer the to actually answer the question, what the fuck was going on with that dude? With this, in like a medical way, with as much scientific rigor. Yeah. What what was going on with that guy? Yeah. In as much of like a scientific way as you could for a patient who's, you know, been dead for decades. Uh, He used written and oral statements by Hitler and his close associates to try and put together a picture of the Fuhrer's health. Redlich's book relied heavily upon Dr. Theodore Morell's records. And I'm going to quote from the Psychiatric Times here. 
Before the outbreak of war in 1939, Hitler's complaints included insomnia, eczema, and GI discomfort. His health is known to have declined considerably starting in 1941. Redlich cited a host of ailments, including tinnitus, severe headaches, dizziness, impaired vision, abdominal spasms, impairments in motility, and, during the final year of the war, jaundice, laryngitis, runny nose, more bouts of GI spasms, tremor of his hands, and conspicuous difficulties in locomotion, evidence of Parkinson's disease. In 1945, his GI symptoms and tremors worsened, eventually leaving him unable to move around completely on his own. In treating these symptoms over the years, Morell prescribed for Hitler a cocktail of medications that included opiates, morphine, oxycodone, barbiturates, cocaine, amphetamines, and bromides. In the end, Redlick drew a conclusion that has been repeatedly, fr repeated frequently ever since. Hitler abused amphetamines, particularly between 1939 and 1943, and was temporarily impaired by such abuse. And this was probably the most Hitler a diagnosis, probably the most popular and thorough look at morale and Hitler's drug use prior to Oler's work. And like Oler's work, Redlich's book was heavily criticized. Experts noted that many of his sources were unreliable because, again, a lot of this is based on uh, personal recollections of Nazis who survived the war who are fundamentally untrustworthy people. Um, and yeah, and even more than that, they criticized Redlicht for the fact that his emphasis on the Fuhrer's drug abuse came close to excusing Hitler's crimes, um, which you obviously never want to do. And the same criticism is made of Blitz. We'll see how we feel about that at the end of this. But right now, I think it's time to get into the meat of Oler's work, which is his portrait of Dr. Morell and the relationship Hitler had with his primary physician. Here's how Oler introduces Morell. Quote, the word Jew was smeared on the plaque of a doctor's surgery on Beirutherstrasse in Berlin's Charlottenburg district one night in 1933. The name of the doctor, a specialist in dermatological and sexually transmitted diseases, was illegible. Only the opening hours could still be seen clearly. Weekdays 11 to 1 and 5 to 7, apart from Saturday afternoon. The overweight, bald Dr. Theodore Morell reacted to the attack in a way that was, typical, that was as typical as it was wretched. He quickly joined the Nazi party to defuse further hostility of that kind. Morell was not a Jew. The SA had wrongly suspected him of being one because of his dark complexion. After he had registered as a party member, Morell's practice became even more successful. It expanded and moved into the lavish rooms of a 19th century building on the corner of Kurfürstendamm and Fassanenstrasse. Now, Morell was not at all unique in, in joining the Nazi party to avoid, you know, getting getting accused of being Jewish. Yeah, very common. He was one of, and again, not just for that reason, he was one of what, hundreds of thousands of German professionals who were what you would call apolitical Nazis. If the Nazi party had never come around, they probably never would have done anything bad. They would have done whatever their fucking job is, right? Um, but because being the best way to further their career or just make life easier was to join the Nazi party, they joined the Nazi party and thus played some role in the Holocaust. Um, and yeah, uh, so as you might expect, Morell was not a great doctor. Again, STDs were kind of his primary uh, area of expertise, but the thing that he really loved to focus on was the very new field of vitamins. Now, in the early 1900s, we'd figured out that vitamins were things and that you would die without them, but we did not know a whole lot more than that, right? Vitamins still a pretty new concept that there's like, there's these things that if you don't get enough of them, you your body stops you working. Yeah. Um, so there was an idea among, and when we start to realize like, oh shit, vitamin C or like, you know, potassium, you can have, you can feel immediate effects when you take some of this stuff like B12, right? And you can, if you've ever, if you, especially if you're dealing with like a deficiency, like it's, it's fucking quick. Um, and so that, that convinces a lot of people that like, 
you can, you know, if some of these can have such an immediate effect on people who are vitamin deficient, maybe taking shitloads of vitamins will like make you superhuman, right? <laughs> like just inject huge doses of them and you'll be, you know, it's, it's, well, it's Joe Rogan-esque well, stuff, right? Like it's the, yeah. <laughs> it also reminds me of being 13 and having yes. friends yeah. take, eat a bunch of yes. nutmeg. It's yeah. the, let's see what happens. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like eating a bunch of nutmeg, taking shitloads of vitamins is a mixed bag and can make you poop a tremendous amount. Um, uh, Shout out to vitamin C. mm -hmm. Shout out to vitamin C. So obviously vitamin injections can be powerful medicine can save people's lives in certain circumstances, right? Incredible potential for malnourished people and in people with certain disorders. And also like there are certain vitamin shots, like if you're hungover and shit, you'll be like, Oh fuck. I feel like, I feel like a King right now. You know? Um, now, the early 1900s was a time, uh, oh, sorry, blah, blah, blah. so um, there is like vitamin injections. That's not like snake oil necessarily. That's not something that's even necessarily bad for you. But Morel marketed his vitamin injections in a way that, again, wouldn't have seemed out of place on like a, a, a podcast ad today. Um, he was, in short, a snake oil salesman, and he relied on the fact that vitamins were new and sexy to help him market them as performance enhancers. He had these, this thing called Vitamolten, which was, he sold it in both like bar form and in a shot that was basically like this powerful vitamin injection that he eventually added like a whole bunch of other stuff to. We'll talk about it. Um, and again, you know, because vitamins don't have a huge impact on people who are already well nourished, Morel at points would make the decision to mix real drugs and hormones into his vitamin shots. Because like, yeah, fuck, you want them to like feel something immediately, right? Put a little amphetamine in there, Let's you know? Put does. a little bit of fucking, put some fucking testosterone in there, you know? Um, like... So he was he was doping people. It wasn't just vitamins. It was often like steroids. It was or or you know amphetamines or, and and eventually like just a shitloaded like everything he could get at caffeine. A lot of the time he would shoot caffeine in. You know it's kind of because again, if you're this guy, if someone's well nourished, just in, most vitamin shots they're not going to feel anything. So shoot a bunch of caffeine in there too. They'll feel that. They'll feel like something's going on. You know like oh shit like I'm 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 powerful now. Um, it's a smart con move. It's a smart if you're con telling move. someone yeah. that you are giving them vitamins, but really you're giving them mm -hmm. a cup of coffee. It yeah. probably does feel like something's working. Yeah. So for male patients, he often shot added in testosterone to act as an anabolic steroid. For female patients, he would include nightshade to help with uh, energy and because he thought it made their eyes prettier. Uh, if that wasn't enough of a boost, he was not above using more powerful stimulants like methamphetamine. We'll talk about meth in more detail later, but the point is Morel's only true talent as a physician was marketing and the fact that he seems to have been really good at injecting people. There were folks who said you couldn't even feel him prick you with the needle. He was so good at what he did. Now, today's fascists are so obsessed with traditionalism that it's often forgotten that the OGs were futurists. Fascism was obsessed with machinery, wow. with cutting-edge science, ultra-modern medical science. Fascism was a modern thing. They loved cars. They loved machine guns. They loved planes. Eugenics at the time was considered hip and exciting science. Morel's and adopted from the States, am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the eugenics and stuff. Sure. I mean, a, a decent amount of this was. Um, and Morel's vitamin shots fit in well with the vibe 
vibe of the early Nazi years. By 1936, he was one of the most prominent doctors in the Reich, and that's the year he got a phone call from Hitler's adjutant, asking him to make a house call for Heinrich Hoffmann, the Fuhrer's official photographer. Hoffman had contracted gonorrhea, and not from his wife. Since he was a prominent Nazi, the regime wanted to treat him in a hush-hush manner. Morell knew a lot about STDs and was able to treat the photographer easily. The Nazis were so grateful that they gave him and his wife a fancy trip to Venice as a thank you for his discretion. Afterwards, he was invited to dine with the Hoffmans in Munich. Hitler showed up, and the group ate all the Nazi leaders. Uh, and the group all ate the Nazi leader's favorite meal: spaghetti with nutmeg, tomato sauce on the side, and green salad. From oh. Blitzed, quote, yeah, Hitler's weird, weird eater. Hitler, who had heard a great many good things about the jovial Morel, thanked him before dinner for treating his old comrade and regretted not having met the doctor before. Perhaps then his chauffeur, who had died of meningitis a few months earlier, would have still been alive. Morel reacted nervously for the compliment and barely spoke during the spaghetti dinner. The constantly sweating doctor with the full face and the thick round glasses on his potato nose knew that in higher circles he was not considered socially acceptable. His only chance of acceptance lay in his injections. So he pricked up his ears when Hitler, in the course of the evening, talked almost in passing about severe stomach and intestinal pains that had been tormenting him for years. Morel hastily mentioned an unusual treatment that might prove successful. Hitler looked at him quizzically and invited Morel and his wife to further consultations at the Berghof, his mountain retreat in the Obersalzburg near Berchtesgaden. There, a few days later, during a private conversation, the dictator frankly admitted to Morel that his health was now so poor that he could barely perform any action. That was, he claimed, due to the bad treatment given to him by his previous doctors, who couldn't come up with anything but starving him. Then, if there happened to be an abundant dinner on the program, which was often the case, he immediately suffered from unspeakable bloating and itchy eczema on both legs, so that he had to walk around with bandages around his feet and couldn't wear boots. Morel immediately thought he recognized the cause of Hitler's complaints and diagnosed abnormal bacterial flora, causing poor digestion. Now, we don't know exactly what was wrong with Hitler at this point, like medically. In the mid-aughts, historian Hendrik E. Burl and physician Hans Joachim Neumann attempted to diagnose the Fuhrer's physical maladies, and I'm going to quote from the Psychiatric Times here. While the German Chancellor appears to have not suffered from any major acute illnesses, he was a victim of chronic diseases. Neumann and Eberl com confirmed that Hitler's long-standing ailments were GI in nature. There are also signs in medical records of, pro of progressive coronary sclerosis and high blood pressure. Most prominently, however, Neumann and Eberl confirmed the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, which really started in the early 1940s. So he's got eczema and he's got something on his GI that gives him this. And his, this is his main complaint. He has this horrific, debilitating gas pain. His gas is so bad that like he can't, he can't function a lot of the time when he eats. Some of this is probably exacerbated by his vegetarian diet. He probably had IBS as a result of his time in the trenches. You talk about people particularly who were over in like Iraq and Afghanistan earlier in those wars before there was as much... Uh, infrastructure on the U.S. side. Nearly all of them have some sort of IBS. It's just something you get when you're in, in trenches, the water's dirty and stuff. Um, there's a number of things that are probably going on with Hitler. Um, but it is it is likely right that he had something going wrong with his bacterial flora, you know, um, perhaps because of, uh, uh, you know, his injuries during the war or something. Um, but we now know that mm, like... Maybe it's all gut, the shitty food he eats. Yeah, all the bad food he eats. Gut bacteria have a big impact on your health. Um, and that was 
was starting to be understood then. It's still kind of a primitive science yes. now, comparatively. Um, and Morel prescribed his leaders something called mutaflor. This was a gut bacteria supplement. It had actually been crafted from the intestinal flora of a German soldier who'd been sent to the Balkans during World War One and had been like the only guy in his unit not to get horrible stomach issues. So, they, and that's actually a really good medical thing. Is like, well, that guy seems like let's get the shit out of his guts and like give it to other people, you know. And mutaflor was live bacteria in capsules taken with the hope that they'd set up permanent shop in the patient's bowels. This was real medicine and its impact on Hitler's GI tract was apparently powerful and quick. Um, Hitler experienced immediate relief, although not permanent relief. So I don't know exactly what was going on here. But he was so overjoyed to be cured, as he felt at the time, that he gave Morel a house and made him his personal physician. But Morel wasn't a gut bacteria specialist. He was a vitamin man. Hitler still had health complaints, and a lot of them were probably due to permanent injuries caused by his service and the fact that he was just an aging man, you know, in a time when medicine wasn't very good. So Morel was able to convince his new boss that vitamins were the answer. You're not tired because you're pushing 50 and you have been, you know, going without sleep and working like a crazy person and like you were injured and suffered permanent damage in a war. You're tired because you need these vitamin injections that are also full of caffeine or sometimes amphetamines, you know? Um, so he was basically like, I, you're, you're, you can't, like you need vitamins and because vitamin pills take too long and your schedule is so demanding, I've just got to start shooting you up every time before a speech in order to like get you, get you hyped up. Get you going. Yeah. Yeah. And Morel starts giving Hitler shots and he never stops until the very end of the war. And he would put a wide variety of substances into the Nazi leader's veins, iodine, vitamins, chalk. And when Hitler had a big wow. speech, a power injection, which often contained glucose to give him a boost of sugar fuel, uh, sugar fueled energy, probably caffeine also a lot of the time. Morel's immediate goal was an instant cessation of symptoms. So if you're tired, he wants you to feel wired right away, you know? Um, and to that end, he continually experimented and tweaked the injections he was giving Hitler. We don't always know what they included um, because sometimes Morel just, I gave him, you know, shot number whatever. And it's like, okay, well, what the fuck was in that? And uh, Oler does a lot of good work to try to diagnose it, you know? A lot of times that aren't recorded, there's probably some, if not amphetamine, than at least caffeine in these things. We don't always know. Um, we do know that in 1937, um, the Nazi leader lost his voice before a big speech and Morel gave him an injection of something that is said to have cured him immediately. Like, who knows what the fuck he was shooting Are into the sure guy. Are you lip sync? <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> tell Hitler to lip sync. <laughs> yeah. Um, soon Morel was so indispensable to the Fuhrer that he was forced to let his medical practice shrivel up from lack of attention. Hitler couldn't let him be away from him, right? Um, he needed That's him healthy. kind of available on call at all time. Hitler was an all-consuming patient, but he rewarded Dr. Morel well, making him a wealthy man. In 1938, he gave his doctor an honored professorship. For his part, Morel kept looking for new substances to shoot into Hitler's body. The 1936 Olympics had seen the advent of the use of Benzedrine, which is classic speed. When your parents talk about doing <laughs> speed in the 70s, that's Benny's, baby. Yeah. Uh, you can still get it today if you get a Benzodrex inhaler. You make the little allergy inhalers. You just make sure that they say Benzodrine on them. You pop them open. You take the little cotton cloth out, throw it in a water bottle. You're good to go. You'll um, kill allegedly, it. Allegedly. Dance. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> um... 
So yeah, benzodrine gets big after the 36 Olympics and a German pharmaceutical company makes a note of this. They're like, well, seems like people love speed. We should develop a better speed. And the chemical they picked to make an even better speed was a little substance you might have heard about. It was first synthesized in 1919 by Japanese chemists and its name was N-methylamphetamine. It's the good shit. That's the good that's shit. The Protect good, your teeth good from it. Shit. Yeah, baby. Ah, meth. Speaking of drugs with no, no downsides. So, in short order, Timler was producing methamphetamine pills as an over-the-counter medication under the brand named Pervitin. Um, and sales started in the weekend of night in the winter of 1937, and the drug use was and the drug was immediately popular among the young Third Reich users, or among, and the drug was immediately popular in the young Third Reich. Soon, Timmler was even selling boxes of meth spiked chocolate. They bragged that their wonder drug was good for quote reawakening joy in the despondent, and that frigid, frigidity in women can be easily influenced with Pervitin tablets. Give a girl some meth, and she'll want to get down. You know, <laughs> yeah. You can just put that on what a box and sell it. What you're missing is meth. <laughs> is meth? <laughs> uh, when it's all legal, I I hope to be an ad man for the methamphetamine industry. It it's help. so easy it to can sell help with chemistry. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Ads like it that can help as well. If you you and your wife been fighting, fight faster on meth. You know exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to continue to read from Timler's ads for Pervitin. The treatment technique is as simple as can be imagined. Four half tablets every day, long before bedtime, 10 days a month for three months. This will achieve excellent results by increasing women's libido and sexual power. Take meth every day to fuck better. Meth, I'm almost positive, would not help me get laid. I mean, when I smoked pot in college, I would (laughs) perpetually ruin dates. By avoiding mm-hmm. the person I was sitting next to. I literally in college smoked weed once with this guy who I was like set, getting set up with. Mm-hmm. Didn't speak to him at all. I was like, <laughs> I need to go home. And apologized to him. The next time I saw him, I was like, hey, John, I'm so sorry about that. That was so weird. Um, I would love to just like see if we could do this again. And he said, thank you so much for apologizing. What did we do on our next date? Smoke weed together. I was like, I've got to leave again. So mm-hmm. sorry. And um, that was the end of our um, short-lived relationship. So I, I feel like if meth was added, it wouldn't help the situation is what I'm saying. I mean, you know, there's only one way to find out, which is track that guy down and take a just rail a fuckload of crystal. Just, okay, just... only if they put it in chocolate and and I want yeah, them in those yeah. little Roche uh the little roast chocolates. Yeah. I would like one, you know, yes. there's like those, those chocolate cherries, the little cherry in the middle of the chocolate thing. Yeah, that like kind just of a, texture. With a little rock of crystal meth right in the middle. Right that in the middle. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. yeah, the surprise. Or maybe like those little eggs they make. Uh, those oh, yeah. Eggs. Cadbury. Oh, I was thinking Cadbury but eggs. instead of like building a toy inside, you, um, you uh, smoke meth. Just a fuckload of meth-filled Cadbury eggs. God, that would be rad. Um, <laughs> allegedly. So methamphetamine was even useful in treating drug addicts. Uh, according, again, this is according to the company selling meth. That's they advised, a really good yeah, bag. <laughs> yeah, They advised people withdrawing from alcohol, cocaine, or heroin to take a little meth to help them get over the shakes. Meth was so like, oh, I'm trying to get off of heroin. You know, it'll clean you up. A little bit of methamphetamine. Can you pronounce this? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you're ready to take it. Oh yeah. Cocaine's bad stuff. Take this meth. <laughs> Clean you right out. Um, so again, the, the reason I bring all this up is to point out that like meth was not a drug in the third. It wasn't seen as a drug in the third Reich. It was just seen as like a medicine, particularly like a treatment for anything. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a helper. It was not a recreational substance. Um, it was advice. It was advertised as capable of bringing quote shirkers, malingerers, defeatists, and whiners into the Nazi fold and turning them into pr- to productive, obedient citizens. They were saying like meth will help turn you into a good Nazi. You'll be able to work if you're lazy because you'll be on meth. One pharmacology, and again, that's also, you could draw a line to like why they were advertising that it makes women want to fuck is like, well, it's all about breeding, right? Like meth is the drug that makes you, helps you work in a factory or get laid and make babies, you know? Like that's why they're selling it the way they're selling it or a big part of it. One pharmacologist, Felix Hoffner, called prescribing Pervitin the new supreme commandment of his discipline in Germany. He was saying like, if you're a pharmacist, it's your duty to give Germans meth. Um, He called it a chemical, he said that it could bring chemical order to disordered people. Now, we don't know when precisely Morell first gave Hitler methamphetamine. The the bad doctor had often uh, gave given like he gave again he had like different brand names for his various injections. And while some of his notes were detailed, this wasn't always the case. It's likely that Hitler started taking meth in a couple of different forms, potentially in the late 1930s, uh, as he'd often complained of a lack of energy. And by 1938 and 1939, Pervitin was incredibly popular among German civilians. So the fact that Hitler's taking amphetamines during this period of time was not odd. It, 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 it wasn't something unique to him. It was something that made him very much normal among like the German working class in this period. That said, it was not something that was widely publicized. Hitler's reputation was a, he was a sober man and he didn't drink, which was weird. Like he was not a guy who drank a lot. Um, he didn't really smoke. Uh, he, he had this reputation for being indefatigable, almost superhuman. And this was a big part of his appeal. So they didn't want to like talk about the fact that he was as drugged up as everybody else. Historians Steven Snelders and Toyn Peters called Nazi Germany after 1938 a methamphetamine dictatorship. And when they say that, they don't mean that Hitler was a meth dictator, although he was a dictator on meth. I'm going to quote from Psychiatric Times to get to what they're saying here. Rather than emphasizing the role of the suppliers, however, they argue that the evidence shows strong demand pressures for the drug from consumers. In clinical practice, the drug was first used to treat psychological inhibition and endogenous depression and to augment what was referred to as the will to get healthy. Pervitin quickly moved from clinical to general practice and was prescribed fairly common for employees, workers, and housewives. In fact, a praline chocolate with 14 milligrams of pervitin was marketed to the general public. So it's a meth dictatorship because everyone is on meth. They're on meth to deal with their depression, their anxiety, like the fact that it's a bummer living in Nazi Germany. They're on meth to deal with the fact that like they have to, like the the, the work schedules, like the production they're trying to do. To go on dates. Meth is in a way the dictator, you know, to go on dates to make enough babies. Incredible. And this is one of those things where I don't think Oler is really guilty of this, but I think that people kind of interpreting his work have made way too much of Hitler's amphetamine use. And and rather than put it in the context of like, no, 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 all of the Nazis were on a fuckload of speed and that is relevant and it impacted their behavior and impacted history in a significant way. But it's not that like Hitler was on meth and, and made crazy decisions. It was that the the whole Third Reich was in the late 30s and early 40s, very methamphetamine dependent. And that's kind of important to note. 
Um, now, it's tempting to speculate as to which of Hitler's temper tantrums and rages were influenced by Matthews. I'm going to avoid that temptation. It is impossible to know, and while Meth certainly had an impact on his behavior, that impact was more to exacerbate the kind of rages he'd always engaged in. Hitler even used Morel to dose another head of state, Czech President Emil Hasha, during a crucial moment. In March of 1939, Hitler was trying to negotiate over the annexation of Czechoslovakia. It was crucial that the smaller country just sort of hand themselves over without fighting, because Germany actually couldn't have successfully invaded Czechoslovakia. They were kind of bluffing here. Um, Hasha was ill when he attended a state visit to the Reich's Chancellery, where Hitler demanded he order the surrender of Czech troops. Hasha suffered a heart attack, which rendered him unable to function. And I'm going to quote from Blitzt here next. Hitler urgently summoned Morel, who hurried along with his case and his syringes and injected the unconscious foreign guest with such a stimulating medication that Hasha rose again within seconds, as if from the dead. He signed the piece of paper that sealed the temporary end of his state. The very next morning, Hitler invaded Prague without a fight. During the following years, Hasha sat the powerless head of the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, to which parts of his country had been reduced, remaining Morel's loyal patient. In that respect, pharmacology worked as a way of continuing politics by other means." And this reminds yeah. me a lot of a girl in uh, New York who once uh, went down a K hole, and <laughs> um, everyone was worried that she was going unconscious until Carly Rae Jemsen's song "Call Me Maybe" came on, and then she shot up back mm-hmm. from the dead. Hey, that song is morally identical to dosing someone with meth- methamphetamine. Exactly. I've always said that. I've always said that. Now, the annexation of Austria and Czechoslovakia was pretty much went off perfectly for Hitler, but his next goal, the conquest of Poland, was going to require actual, you know, war stuff. The Fuhrer and his general staff all had clear, terrible memories of the First World War, and they wanted more than anything to avoid a repeat of the bloody stalemates of the Western Front. The German war machine developed several solutions to this problem. One of the major reasons that allowed them to kind of, that, that was crucial behind Blitzkrieg, was small unit stormtrooper tactics that had started being developed near the end of the First World War. The term the Germans used for this was Auftragstaktik. Um, and it was, it was heavily, we'll talk about this a bit more later, but it was heavily based around allowing a lot of unit autonomy. There's this like myth that the, the Nazi soldiers were these like automatons who followed orders unquestioningly. The reason why the Blitzkrieg worked is that individual small unit leaders were given a degree of personal discretion and, and choice and power to make decisions in the field that no other military in the world gave them at this point. Um, and that's a big part of why they were successful. They were also, the Blitzkrieg was also crucially relied on the fact that the Germans had built up a significant amount of armored cars, tanks, and close air support craft to enable a speedier sort of mechanized warfare. And as all of this developed, an idea developed, championed by men like General Heinz Guderian, that this new German army might be able to move quickly enough to avoid the static fortifications that had bogged them down in 1914. But technology and tactics only went so far. Poland was huge, and war with Poland meant war with France. In order to have a hope of sweeping through either country, German soldiers were going to need chemical assistance. And Pervitin was just what the doctor general ordered. From a write-up in Time magazine, quote, Dr. Otto F. Rank, director of the Research Institute of Defense Physiology, had high hopes that Pervitin would prove advantageous on the battlefield. His goal was to defeat the enemy with chemically enhanced soldiers, soldiers who could give Germany a military edge by fighting harder and longer than their opponents. After testing the drug on a group of medical officers, Rank believed that Pervitin would be an excellent substance for rousing a weary squad. We may grasp what far-reaching military significance it would have if we managed to remove the natural tiredness using medical methods. 
Ronk himself was a daily user, as detailed in his wartime medical diary and letters. Quote, With Pervitin, you can go on working for 36 to 50 hours without feeling any noticeable fatigue. This allowed Ronk to work days at a time with no sleep. And his correspondence okay. indicated... Yeah. <laughs> is this an ad? It is. It is an ad for, for again, no. primary sponsor of the show, methamphetamine right, no. under a bridge near also you. No. And Pervitin. Mm-hmm. You can cook it in your bathtub if you really want or you're, you know, wherever. That's so sad. It's safe. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, so we're going to talk more about all of this in part two, but uh, but that's going to do it for us in part one. Carolina, how are you? How are you feeling? Has this changed your mind on meth at all? Okay, I'm really starting to look at my dating history and I'm realizing a missing puzzle piece methamphetamine meth. mm-hmm. methamphetamine mm-hmm. and maybe just like the super vitamin shot of yeah. chalk chalk oh you can't get enough coffee, chalk glucose yeah. and uh whatever human growth hormone whatever else he was throwing in there i think it's fair to say a lot of us have been looking for love in all the wrong places and maybe exactly. the right place is crystal meth Exactly. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. When you're on meth, every day is Valentine's Day. That's the beauty That's of meth. That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Uh, Carolina, do you have anything other than methamphetamine you want to plug? <laughs> I would love to plug my show, True Romance, where mm-hmm. we discuss um, dating horrors and recovering from anything from an episode of The Bachelorette to a terrible first date to a truly devastating breakup. We're here for you. Every Thursday, there's a new episode on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, on our next episode, I will be trying to going on a blind date. Yeah. Literally yeah. blind. I will be blacked yeah. out. And on all um, our next episodes, I think we'll be on meth too. Sophie, can we get a line item in the budget for just like a shitload yeah, of meth? Yeah, come on, so. So come on, Sophie. Not come on. This question. Well, but off the record. Off the record, we're absolutely gonna do some meth. Excellent. All right. Good news, everybody. Uh, well, this has been behind the bastards. Methamphetamine is actually based edition. Listen, it could happen here. It's now daily, and and it's on the same podcast app you're listening to. Maybe if I was, you know what? Hell, Stop Sophie, lobbying for this. Stop it. <laughs> that's the episode. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. That's the episode. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is Sheep Hibbets the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.